Nāmihi Nui. Thank you for joining us for this Auckland Libraries podcast. Today we present a talk from this year's Auckland Heritage Festival. Local historian Lisa Trutman has researched the background to Auckland's transit camps, a little-known part of the city's history, and one from which very little trace remains. As the name suggests, the camps provided a temporary home for people until they were in a position to move into more permanent accommodation. They were often places of community, bringing people together in the hope for something better. Back in 2012, after hearing about transit camps for years from people, they would mention, oh, you know, we stayed in a transit camp, or our parents stayed in a transit camp, or did you worry where's a transit camp in such and such a place? I decided to research the one at Western Springs. The inspiration behind wanting to research that camp is the same with most of my personal projects. I wanted to find out more, and the best way of finding out more is going out there and finding out more. To a certain extent I did, uh, then other things happened in my life and work projects came up, I put the project to one side, didn't ditch it, just put it to one side, I had written up a certain amount of draft and I called it by the working title A Place to Stay a While, which has remained its title. Fast forward to 2019, now last year I bought out a book called The Canal Promoter. While I was having a coffee with Lady Barbara Harvey, Sir Bob and Lady Barbara Harvey were aware of the project right from, from almost all of those, those years, intervening years. I shared, shared my rough draft with them at one point, I think twice, and Sir Bob's family stayed at Western Springs Camp, the upper number two camp near Motions Road. Well, in this coffee morning, Barbara says to me, have a cuppa. At an Avondale Cafe. Of course, Avondale. I come from Avondale. When are you going to bring out that transit camp book? <laughs> I've just done this other one. Uh, so after I stopped blinking my eyes, I was like a deer caught in the headlights, I said, OK, I'll bring it back up to higher priority, which I did, and set to it. Now, because at that stage, and there's been a number of years, uh, I am a professional self-employed heritage researcher, and considerable number of years of experience under my belt and in those years of experience I've come to realise that well, you can't just really, really research one little bit, you really do have to look at the context to get the full story. So that's what I did, I started looking at the context and uh, as I was looking at the context this whole study spread from Western Springs to the Isthmus and then to the Auckland region and then to the country. Uh, the camps, though, outside Auckland, I covered in the book only in summary. Someone else in the future will have to come along, and if they have a mind to research Morrinsville or research the Wellington area, which had a number of various camps in their region, uh, the, to have their, if they have the time and the resources and the money to go ahead and do that, and I would advise that they then head to researching primarily in city council archives, territorial authority archives and everything else, as well as some of the government ones, uh, that's, that's up to them. Hopefully they can winkle out more details on the other camps. But uh, I did do get a good overall impression of the topic, even by summary, 
thanks to the government department files, uh, along with the governmental policies that govern the scheme. The result was the book, A Place to Stay a While, that this was published this year on the 1st of September, uh, and it's the largest of my self-publications at 100 pages. Normally I, I, I stop at about 80, this one went to 100. Uh, yes, I have sent a copy of this to the Harveys. Had to. Them that was putting the gentle pressure upon me. Welcome gentle pressure. So, a question I've been asked quite a few times, what is a transit camp? Yeah. So, one dictionary definition is basically a camp where refugees, soldiers, etc. live temporarily before moving to another destination. It is a camp for people that's in transit. During World War II, transit camps had a very bleak reputation at best. They were generally military camps, soldiers were there, but at worst, it does have an association with the evils of the Holocaust. Auckland, like other urban centres, had experienced housing shortages since the 1920s, along with the need to clear out slum areas to provide better standards of housing, particularly in the Freemans Bay area, Ponsonby area, inner city, and also Parnell. These issues looked like they were starting to be sorted out in the late 1930s with the government state housing program. But then the war intervened. And by 1942, basically building projects stopped. By 1943, it was very clear that society was shifting people into urban centres faster than there was good housing to accommodate them. On top of that, we had the issue of returned servicemen coming back to the country, and they required housing for themselves and their families. The mayor of Auckland at the time was John Andrew Charles Allen. Now, these days, he's better known for his associations with the Auckland Harbour Bridge. He was the chair of the committee that was in charge of getting that done finally and pushing it through in the 1950s. Few recall, though, that a decade before, during the Second World War, he started the transit housing program, which would sweep around the country through to the mid-1950s. And it all started with Western Springs. In 1933, the Auckland City Council set up a motor camp at Western Springs, right next to the zoo. The driveway to the motor camp leading off of Motions Road is today the main entrance way to the Auckland Zoo. This was part of a trend from the 1920s to provide areas around the country for motorists on holiday to travel to and stay a while, put up a tent, and then travel on to another um, sightseeing place. The council, though, were particularly interested in setting up Western Springs as a recreation precinct. They already had the zoo, they now had the motor camp, they had the golf course across the road at Great North Road, Chamberlain Park Golf Course, and they had the stadium. Much of the park in the, in, in the middle was a wilderness around the lake, and the council's works department had a depot in and around the old pump house. The motor camp was very popular right through to 1942. In that year, the motor camp was taken over by the government for war purposes, paying rental to the council, and became the first all-American camp in Auckland from, rather fittingly, 4th of July, 1942. American Independence Day, for anybody who's not aware of what 4th of July is, who hasn't been inundated with Americanism since dot. Uh, 
After this, it became a rest camp, later administered by the Red Cross. Prefabricated units were added to the existing brick and stone permanent buildings of the motor camp. They provided uh, a, an ablutions block, a place for you to simply wash your hands, a store, a simple store, a communal kitchen. And so those were the only ones that were related from the motor camp. The other things that related from the motor camp was this area here. There's a swimming pool. The motor camp had its own swimming pool. Actually, it had two, paddling pool and a swimming pool. Sadly, things happened to the swimming pool and the paddling pool during World War II, not the Americans' fault. They simply weren't used, and by the time that the council took the, the, the facility back over again, they were in no fit state, so all the lining was cracked and everything else, and somebody had done something with the chlorination equipment. They never found it, which was a bit of a shame. Uh, it was, this, this camp, though, was vacated in June of 1944. At the time, Mayor Allen's attention was on Mob 6, which is another American facility out at Avondale. Uh, that's the site of today's Avondale College and Avondale Intermediate. This naval hospital closed in May of 1944, and work began almost immediately on converting it to education use. James Fletcher, then conveniently Commissioner of Works, as well as being, of course, the head of his own contracting and construction company of some fame, uh, passed on to Mayor Allen the information that certain outbuildings in this, in this facility uh, were basically going to be vacated as well. And um, they were up for grabs. You know, basically, the city could have those. They would make great accommodation for emergency housing, temporary housing, if Alum could think of a place to put them. And then Mayor Alum says, yeah, I can think of a place, Western Springs. And the place he considered was the corner of Western Springs, the corner of Motions Road and Great North Road, right beside where the American camp was. Now, that went according to plan. Fletcher arranged for their removal of the buildings from Avondale and set them up as prefabricated housing units on the reserve at Western Springs from the corner of Great North Road, as I said, along Motions Road to the camp. And those are the units that are being set up there. But then, while discussing this with Fletcher, Alum heard the other man say, in passing, that the American camp too was being vacated, leaving behind the rows of smaller buildings, little hutments. This gave Alum an idea. Instead of having the government remove those buildings to reinstate the motor camp, which would have been nice, hey, we'll get our motor camp back, but no, Alum says, no, hang on, we've got this housing crisis. Now, wouldn't it be good if we not only had those units there at the corner, but we also had the huts as well? We could use those. Leave those right where they are, he said, and we'll set up another camp to, to add on to that. And the former American camp therefore became Western Springs Transit Camp Number 1, down the bottom in the hollow, and this became the upper camp, Camp Number 2. In organising this, negotiating with the Public Works Department, State Advances Corporation, the second NZEF Association, that's the Returned Soldiers, the War Assets Realisation Board, that's the board that actually worked out how much was the, sell the selling price of some of these huts and buildings and everything else and how much people should pay to then take them over, and the Rehabilitation Board, which worked on housing, returned servicemen, Alan was progressing an idea that, and I can't emphasise this enough, 
had no legislative foundation. It was completely done on empty air. Not, not that it was illegal. It wasn't illegal what was happening. But there was simply no act of parliament. There was no order in council from the Governor-General. There was no wartime emergency regulation in place stating specifically that such could be done, taking over these war assets, turning them into temporary housing and starting a transit camp. And there was no supportive framework about it. There was nothing written down in policy and procedure saying, well, this government department's going to do this and this government department's going to do that and here's the council's responsibilities. They just simply did it. They just went ahead and got it done. Uh, all of the, that came later. All the red tape, all the policies and the procedures came months later under its own emergency regulation toward the end of 1944, by which time the Western Springs camps had been operating for four months from August. Allen's council purchased the huts at the American camp and the buildings from Avondale. They agreed to act as rental agents for, as for the tenants of the camp. The tenants were allocated on a 50-50 basis from both the State Advances Corporation for civilians and the Rehabilitation Boards for returned servicemen. The length of stay was to be six months for the smaller units and up to a year for the larger ones. They had more, more self-contained, they had more facilities involved with them. The huts did not, they relied on communal facilities. At the end of the stay in the transit camp, the tenants moved on to new rental accommodation. Western Springs Transit Camp was the first of its kind in the country. A real effort was made to provide something for those in housing need, which was a step up from where they'd been, but was still merely a transit situation. A dining room, as you can see here, was attempted in the first weeks of the camp. Now, breakfast, lunch, and dinner were provided, but at an additional fee on top of the rental that was being paid by the families. Many found this to be far too onerous financially. They preferred to prepare their own meals in their own huts. So the dining room closed before the end of 1944. I'm still not sure what happened to all those lovely chairs. Instead, rain jets were provided in each of the huts, and tenants then carried their dishes to a common washing up shed. Laundry and ablutions were also communal in the small um, areas in Camp 1. Mayor Allum's experiment was copied around the country, with many representatives from other councils paying a visit to the camp and noting the ideas. It also lasted the longest of the camps. While Camp 1 with the smaller units ceased in 1957, Camp 2 continued right through to 1978 as emergency housing. The next camp was Victoria Park. That turned out to be Auckland City Council's second and smallest transit camp. The park itself originated from late 19th century reclamations by the Auckland Harbour Board. Most of the park therefore belonged to the board through to the later amalgamations. Auckland City was able to get hold of the basic corner, the northwest corner of the park, under their own title. Everything else was the Harbour Board and was leased out by the Harbour Board. During World War II, the playing fields hosted another American camp, which was vacated in July 1944. The, now, this camp was interesting because it was made up of the hutments, the huts, 
but it's also made up of these more, well, not really permanent things, but more durable sort of buildings, which was a hospital, kitchen, mess, offices, accommodation, and you can see in the distance there was some more around the other side as well. The council wanted their playing fields here back in order. They were being pressured by the public. We want to have our cricket back. We want to have our rugby back. We want our kids to play across the grass, thank you very much. So they pressured the government to hurry up and get the area cleared. But then someone with an eye to the issue of, the, again, the proposed slum clearance in the inner city and Freemans Bay areas, it was proposed to set up another transit camp here, like that at Western Springs. But this time at Victoria Park, where the council did own, as I say, a corner section outright, so they could choose what they wanted to do with that particular part. But they wanted something bigger than just that wee corner. They put it to the Auckland Harbour Board to allow them to also use land along the Fanshawe Street frontage. Now, originally Fanshawe Street was a road, and then they shifted Fanshawe Street a bit north, so there suddenly became a strip of parkland added to the rest of Victoria Park. Now, the council had that in mind. They, hey, that's a great idea. We could sweep along the road, road frontage and get more space to put these buildings on, and also some buildings from the Inner Domain and from Camp Hale, which was around by the museum. The Auckland Harbour Board, though, when they had it put to them to allow the use of that Fanshawe Street frontage, they turned the council down. They said the land was meant for recreation. The terms of the council's lease was that the land was meant for recreation and, and not for housing, not even in a crisis. But the council said, you let the military be on there during the war. Uh, the board says, yeah, well, that was different. There was a war on. Now the war is over. Get your stuff off the park. So... And it also didn't help that at the time there was ructions within Auckland City Council. One councillor in particular, Fred Ambler, was dead set against any housing on any public park in the Auckland City Council area. He really didn't like Western Springs, but he had to let Western Springs go. That was actually happening. But this he opposed, and he opposed vociferously, and resolutions were passed and rescinded and passed again. And the Harbour Board turned around and said, well, if you cannot agree amongst yourselves, how can you expect us to give you permission? So that didn't sit terribly well. So Auckland City Council basically gave in. They shifted the larger buildings to the corner site and gave up the idea on adding any more buildings from the domain area. It lasted from 1946 to 1958 in a neighbourhood dominated by the Auckland Gas Company and their gas works immediately across the road with all the pollution um, filling the air, so it can't have been terribly um, wonderful for the people that were living there. Plus, this place became rather damp and boggy. It was, after all, reclaimed land. This was basically sea level and slightly below. So it wasn't a terribly um, a pleasant place to live in some parts of the year. Um, Hills Hoist clotheslines were provided, but the rostered communal laundries, and they were on a roster, meant if you're a rostered day for using the laundries to get your washing done, torrential rain, squally rain like we had this morning, you were out of luck. You had to wait for the next day of your roster. It was, yeah, it was a bit of a shame. Now, it was here, but there was an outbreak of gastroenteritis that did break out in the, in the late 1950s. 
That led the council to start shutting things down. It became a health risk. And then followed by the news that the Victoria Park flyover for the motorway system was going to go right over that spot. In fact, Public Works wanted to, ended up using one of those buildings as their works headquarters while that was going ahead. So, yes, it ended in 1958. And the origins of Totoki Street Transit Camp on the Domain, Auckland, Auckland City's third and last, um, are in Camp Hale, which was the American camp on the front, at the front of the museum, just down below where the cenotaph is in the courtyard. This was set up for the American military purposes again during World War II. After some, now I still don't know exactly why it's called Camp Hale. I know there was a camp, there's a Camp Hale in the States and it's somewhere up in the snow country, but I'm not, still not 100% sure why this ended up being called Camp Hale, whether it was called Camp Hale of the American camp or not. But so, I'm so you, you, can, you can ask that question and I would say, I don't know, just in case. After some negotiation, the council obtained permission to move both of the, uh, of the um, to use these camp buildings uh, to uh, moving to the new site at Totoki Street to temporarily use part of the Auckland Domain for housing, which is the thing. Auckland Domain had its separate government regulations and gazettings. They needed a special permission from government to use the Auckland Domain. And oh, um, the Lands Department were not in favour of that whatsoever. They wrote vociferous long letters about why this was not a good thing. You start this, you're going to set a precedent. Everyone says, well, no, we're going to do it anyway. So, The Totoki Street project was one of the early contracts for an up-and-coming builder and businessman named Keith Hay. To my surprise, when his name popped up, I thought, the Keith Hay? Yes, the Keith Hay. Together with the later Camp Bun and Devonport's Mount Victoria Transit Camp projects, these probably helped form the foundations of the business enterprise that still operates um, today. Hay arranged for the removal of the buildings, laying them out in a grid at the Totoki Street site and behind the museum, providing footpaths, drainage and communal facilities. Interior fittings were made, were made in an on-site workshop that he set up. Uh, Totoki Street being more visible from the road than at Western Springs did not have communal toilet facilities, naturally. They didn't want people saying, why are we seeing these people wandering past in front of all these residential houses with their toilet rolls and everything else? We can't have that. So they did provide toilet facilities in the units. It was, though, well photographed. The council was particularly um, um, proud of this, this setup, just as they were with Western Springs. This is Sparrow Industrial Pictures they got to purposely do this image here. Uh, there's the um, living room interior. Actually, it was quite nice. Uh, just as an aside, um, my family used to have one of those fire similar type of fire guards, so I thought myself it goes back that far. The kitchen. And thanks very much to Tony Brunt, who sent me some images um, via Facebook. These are some photos from his family's collection of when his family was staying there at Totoki. It's actually quite nice. You can exactly see how well it was, it was, it was done. That it was 
inlaid, inlaid and flattened areas for the, the houses themselves. It must have been well drained. There was no complaints of dampness, flooding or anything else with Tatoki. Everything just went down with the drains. The one thing with Keith Hay and his workmen, they did the drainage properly. Now, Tatoki Street lasted from 1946 to 1963, the year I was born, so good heavens. The decision to close the camp had actually been made in 1958, but by then housing reallocations from the camp hinged on provision of new housing in Freeman's Bay, and there had been hold-ups in that direction. The newspapers then began to refer disparagingly to the Totoki Street camp as that this unsightly collection of wartime barracks. As there were conjoined units, more than one unit in a block, uh, whole blocks needed to be vacated before demolition, and often single families remained in a block holding up the whole work. Total vacancy was finally achieved, though, by 1961. However, the buildings weren't completely removed until 1964. The contractor who tended for them and actually purchased them was very slow in actually removing them. Camp Bun. This comes up so many times with people. They, they have a lot of recollections with Camp Bun and connections with it. Now, it's an unusual case for Auckland Camp Bun. Instead of one territorial authority running it, actually unusual for the country, apart from uh, the Trentham Camp, which was run by multiple, multiple associations, this was actually run by 12 territorial authorities as part of the Suburban Association. One Tree Hill, Mount Albert, Waitamata County, Monaco County, Devonport, Northcote, Birkenhead, Anihanga, Mount Wellington, in whose area it actually was, Newland, Mount Eden, and Newmarket. I kid you not, all of those were the, the bodies who did administer, as part of the Suburban Association, Camp Bun. Auckland City was another member of the association, but they already had their own camps, so they were let off. The site had been part of Thomas Moran's Wellington Park stud from the late 19th century. During the early 20th century, a rail line was put through, Tamaki Station built, which still exists, but it's not a passenger station anymore, and on the other side of Pilkington Road, the Tamaki housing estate was mapped out. You could just start seeing it there in this colourised image, which is the half circles radiating outward towards the river. On the railway side, a military storage area was created, known as, initially as Tamaki Camp in 1942. It was renamed Camp Bun by the American forces there in October 1943 as a posthumous honour to a First Lieutenant Benny Morris Bunn, who had apparently been stationed at Auckland for nine months. I cannot confirm that. That's just basically what the American sources are saying. But who died in action on the 10th of July, 1943, on New Georgia Island in the Solomon Islands. I saw an American page, and when they mentioned this, and his mother was very heartened that this camp somewhere in the South Pacific had been named after her son, and I think the Americans thought this was a training camp. It actually wasn't. It was a storage area for all the, the, the goods and services and the story, wartime stores that were going to the Pacific War. But anyway, I'm, I'm sure she was happy. 
the camp was enlarged during 1944, but ceased being used by the military completely in 1945. The Suburban Association received permission to run the Camp Bun Transit Camp for 10 years from 1946. And when they started, it was in two parts, and it still is, that land is in still two parts. This was left as industrial area, warehouses, store areas and everything else. Commercial firms um, uh, took part of it over. A famous toy making company at one point. Meanwhile, the actual military um, huts and the um, accommodation and everything else, that's what became Camp Bun as the transit camp just across the way. Uh, I think you can see the state housing um, development of the Tamaki Estate gradually starting to build up there on the other side of Pilkington. The housing crisis of the 1940s was well on the wane, though, there by the 1950s, and the introduction of uh, capitalisation of family benefit, along with the rise of major housing construction companies and the state's renewed housing programs. But the Suburban Association wanted to keep this camp going because, well, they put a lot of money into it, and then once the amount of rentals that they received actually paid off the money that they put into it, they thought, well, this could actually make us some money from the rents. So they actually did want to keep this going. There was a, a, a cinema set up by Hugh Oakley Brown. He approached the association for permission to run a movie theatre in the camp's recreation hall on a lease basis twice weekly, Wednesdays and Saturdays. It was immensely popular, so he extended his screenings. He also set up a small shop attached to the hall, but that, the hall, the Plunkett rooms and the offices were destroyed in a fire in January 1956 and completely gutted. They weren't rebuilt, and Oakley Brown then set up his own cinema at Pam Muir. This wasn't the first fire, though, at Camp Bun. There was a series of small fires little ones at this corner hut and that corner hut that the, the caretaker dashed out with his fire extinguisher and dealt with, but this one they couldn't deal with. It was a major one. The Suburban Association tried to keep the camp relevant, first by seeking immigration tenants and then by agreeing with conditions to tenants from the list of prospective homeowners from the Māori Affairs Department. This is it was a rather difficult thing with the Māori Affairs Department. They, they did, they set, up, they set up restrictions. Well, we can only have so many Māori families here and we don't want to start setting up a whole area that's all the Māori families. It was, yeah, it was borderline racist and anything else. They were really not terribly wonderful. The Māori Affairs Department was simply actually offering loans to people on their list, and the people were actually build, getting their own houses built. They just needed a place to stay while they were being built. So that didn't work out terribly well. Finally, though, the Suburban Association, in desperation, because the government kept saying, close it down, close it down, we don't have any more interest in your camp, close it down. They said, well, hang on, there's this Māori airport being built, and you've just kicked some people out of their homes for the airport. We could help house them. No, 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 no. Well, hang on, immigrants. There's more immigrants coming in. There's immigrants coming in, particularly like, you know, my mother would have probably, if she hadn't found a motor camp near Avondale to stay at, they would have, it, was a, it would have been a similar thing. Oh, we can take care of the immigrants at this place. No, the government kept saying, close the camp down. We don't need it anymore. So everything eventually failed. By 1961, the camp was vacated. 
There wasn't much left. After the fire, there was only bits and pieces left just at the rear there. That's an enlargement. Everything was cleared, and actually the name Camp Bun still exists. It's the name of the industrial area. There was a recent real estate um, advertisement for whole areas. Well, they actually sell it all in one block, and they, they named it Camp Bun. I thought it was all, and people wouldn't know what, what on earth it's called Camp Bun for. And that's the reason why. Benny Bun, you know, who died in the Pacific. The Mount Victoria transit camp on Takaronga in Devonport uh, was not actually where the Devonport Borough Council wanted to have a transit camp. That was not in their, in their mind at all. From 1945, now bear in mind, Devonport was one of those councils that was involved with the Suburban Association and was administering Camp Bun, but they wanted to start their own camp in Devonport. And the place that they wanted to have was Narrow Neck. They wanted to have the military base. They thought this was great. The roads go through there, the huts were already there, all the buildings were there, it was all plumbed and drained and everything else. We want that. And they kept at the government and at the government, we want narrow neck, we want narrow neck, we want narrow neck. And the government kept saying, no, you are not having narrow neck, that is remaining military use. So the, despite the fact the borough council kept asking, it was all to no avail. Meanwhile, they demanded that the extra built military buildings that was here on Mount Victoria should be removed because they wanted Mount Victoria returned to being a domain and a recreation domain pretty much as it was before the war. And the government said, well, okay, you're hassling us to get, this, get all the, our stuff cleared from this and the former hostel that was used by the Wrens. Walter Nash came up to the Devonport Borough Council, though, and said, now, one moment, and this was back in 1947, one moment, no, this is two years of wrangling, we want narrow neck, you can't have narrow neck, you can't, we want it, you can't have it. Finally, Nash said, how about looking at Mount Victoria's setup instead? We've got these buildings there, the former hostel for the Wrens. It's all set up, it's all plumbed, it's all drained, the buildings are there. Perhaps if we gave you a five-year agreement, perhaps if we gave you help from the Public Works Department to fix things up and make some alterations and all that sort of thing, how about that? Devonport, okay, they've probably stroked their chins a bit and they sent their engineer out to do a report. Do you, think, how, do you think this is a good idea or not? And the engineer came back and says, that's not a bad idea. We wouldn't have to do too much work. Hey, we can get that bloke Keith Hay up from, over from Auckland. He can do some work for, for us and shift some things around. So they decided to go with that. The first tenants arrived here at Mount Victoria, September 1947. If you thought that was the end of the controversies, you're wrong. Devonport's camp was different from any other camp in the Auckland area. The borough council were the ones who did the allocating to the camp, not the rehabilitation board and not the, the um, State Advances Corporation. They were the ones who allocated tenants. They were the ones who also only picked tenants from the Devonport area possibly a bit from Takapuna, but mainly local. Because they felt, hey, we're spending our ratepayers' money doing up this camp. Our ratepayers should be the ones 
benefiting from it. But, and they could well do this. There had been a second set of emergency regulations passed which said, well, no, you, the territorial authorities don't have to go through state advances corporation. They don't have to go through the rehabilitation board. They can do this, choose their own tenants. But Devonport didn't catch on with the second part of that, the actual sting in the tail. If you choose your own tenants, you have to find the tenants' houses as well. And this Devonport didn't plan on. So the tenants there ended up signing with the council. Now they thought this was a camp like Western Springs, like Totoki Street, like Camp Bun. We're signing up, we're therefore on a waiting list, we only have to wait X amount of time and hopefully we get chosen from the waiting list and get a new home. So they waited. Six months went by. A year. Sometimes two years. And still tenants were in the camp and waiting. And they would contact State Advances Corporation. Why are we still waiting? And State Advances would say, you're not on our books. And you're not on our books because you were allocated straight from where you were by the council. We don't know you. You're not on our list. Oh, but we're in a transit camp. That, that doesn't make you any more in need of housing than somebody who is in a slum, leaking roof, and constantly flooding, and uh, huge numbers of kids that they need to get under proper um, roof and with walls and everything else. It does, it does not put you ahead of them you actually got a roof over your head and you've got food on your plate and you've got a place to actually do your dishes. This did not go down well with the tenants. They staged campaign meetings, they staged protest meetings, they staged lobby meetings, they wrote angry letters to the newspaper, they contacted their MPs, they contacted everybody. It all the thing broke loose. The count, eventually, the, the Devonport Borough Council sat down at a table with the Tenants Association, with the State Advances, with the Rehabilitation Board, and nutted things out and agreed, all right, we will have the State Advances Corporation and the Rehabilitation Board do the allocations, and we will do things that way because we can't find these people houses. You can. Now, it wasn't just Devonport being difficult. And they weren't the only council that did this. There was other councils that also misconstrued the regulations, thought, oh, we can go ahead and do our own thing, and not realising that they didn't have that underpinning of the process. And the whole process was whoever allocates them finds the houses at the end. The camp effectively closed at Devonport in 1963, and all barred two buildings were removed. Now, one of these, the Wharetoi, former Kerstry art space, pictured, is a Schedule B as a heritage building in the Auckland Unitary Plan. It's a very rare example of a surviving building remaining from the transit camp era anywhere in the country. But its preservation on the schedule, though, is due to the wartime military link rather than the fact that it was part of the National Programme of Transit Housing. Now, files that are held in Archives New Zealand's Auckland and Wellington offices originated from the State Advances Corporation, who originally oversaw the transit camp regulations, and the Public Works Department, who took over from 1946, cover 
information on all these other sites. Uh, and, and when I, I did the book, I just did a few pages and a brief summary of this start, camp started so-and-so, and it lasted so-and-so, and it may have had this happen to it, and it, then it closed. And this is where I said at the beginning of the speech, if somebody else would like to come along and do their own area and whatnot, I think it'd be a grand idea. It would fill in more space. But I'm sorry, I don't have the resources to do a full nationwide thing. I'd love to, if anybody would shout me the cost of the travel getting around to these, pl these places. But yes, but it was interesting having a brief look at, at them. These files, the officers were actually do summaries of, well, this is what's happening in these areas. Blat, 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 blat. So I was able to get a list going of where some of these activities were happening. Many of these had their own local variations, like with Devonport. The most extreme was Otorahanga, where they allocated tenants to their camp, but then they said, you've got a year to find and sort out your own house. And if you don't, you're a squatter and you're biffed out of the camp. State advance, this is from a State Advances report. And the, at the end, the State Advances officer says, we have one tenant we've allocated to this camp. I don't think we'll allocate any more. They left Otrahunga completely alone. In the end, the camp simply faded away. Around the country, some did revert back to become motor camps. Public park areas were restored. In Western Springs, when you visit Pride Lands today, you are actually walking where the motorists spent their holidays before 1942, and where people were resting and recuperating during World War II, and also where the Transit Camp 1 was where people were going from various situations and standards of housing to stay there for a set number of months, for a few months before they moved on to their own housing. Time, of course, moves on. Other things take over the public's attention and the post-war housing crisis, well, nobody thinks of that. We have our own housing crisis now. We're not thinking about what happened in the past. So this has now been largely forgotten or unknown by later generations. The transit camps are a subject that's been a secret to the extent that they and their place in our history have been overlooked, remembered only by those who had stayed there just a while. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to an Auckland Libraries podcast. You can find further information on our page at SoundCloud or see the Auckland Libraries website.